Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with Carlos Suarez Alvarez, a Spanish journalist and ethnographer with a degree in Amazonian studies from the Universidad Nacional de Colombia. Since 2007, he has lived in the Colombian city of Leticia on the banks of the Amazon River. He's the author of the Ayahuasca Trilogy, which includes the multimedia project Ayahuasca, Iquitos, and Monster Vorax, a series of multimedia books that studies the phenomenon of Ayahuasca in Iquitos, Peru, a shamanic mecca where the local collides with the global. In our conversation, we talk about the impact that the global interest in ayahuasca has had on the people, culture, and ecology of Iquitos and the surrounding area. Since my first visit to Iquitos in 2017, I've wanted to better understand what's going on behind the scenes of the ayahuasca industry, and so I was very happy to find Carlos's work. I found it to be a very balanced view of the situation and appreciated how he allows the people who work in the industry to tell their story. In his multimedia book, you hear not only from the Westerners who travel to Iquitos to participate in ceremonies and those that decide to open their own ayahuasca lodges, but you get to hear directly from the Peruvian healers and their support staff and suppliers how the ayahuasca boom is affecting the way ceremonies are done, the way the ayahuasca is brewed, and how the increased global demand has affected the price and availability of ayahuasca. If you're interested in gaining a deeper understanding of how the global ayahuasca phenomenon is affecting people on a local level, this interview will serve as a good overview of Carlos's work, which I highly recommend checking out. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider making a one-time donation or becoming a Patreon supporter for as little as $1 a month. Each episode takes at least six hours to produce, so a monthly contribution of five or ten dollars is a small price to pay. If you really can't afford to make a contribution, you could take a few minutes and leave a positive review on iTunes. And you can find out more at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, please sit back and enjoy this conversation with Carlos Suarez Alvarez on the Medicine Path. Okay, because I'm worried about my English. You know, there are some technical questions and some, some ideas that sometimes are difficult for me to express. And maybe I, I do it wrong. So maybe you can cut me if, if I say something that is not, you know, understandable. And you can tell me how, you know, what was my mistake, you know, and we can start again with the explanation. Some, sometimes it happens. So please don't be... Um, shy or afraid of telling my mistakes because I need also to to well develop my English the best, the best I can so I'll try to help where I can and, and if something's not clear to me I'll just ask for clarity and I think that's right. the best way to go All right, yeah that's enough okay and you can correct me if I mispronounce your name or any other Spanish words okay that, that'll be All our right. agree- that'll be our agreement <laughs> okay alright well I really enjoyed this series of multimedia books that you've produced. And I I love the format, how it includes a a textual narrative, but also has uh, videos and photos that really put you in that place. And I felt really connected to the people that you interviewed. And you interview a wide range of people to get a sense of what's really going on around Iquitos and how ayahuasca tourism is uh, affecting the place and the people in it. So you interview not only gringos who have traveled there to participate in ceremonies, but you interview gringos who have started their own centers, they're working with ayahuasca, and also local healers and local support staff of some of these centers. So I felt that it's a, a very kind of complete overview, and it gave me, I think, the clearest picture of what's happening down there and the effects of this tourism industry is having on the local economy and and people and also the ecology, which I think is a really important consideration. So I'm wondering, how did you get interested in studying this modern ayahuasca phenomenon in in and around Iquitos? Well, um, I, I visited the jungle first in 2001. I went to a Shipibo community nearby Pucalpa, the indigenous community of San Francisco de Yarinacocha. And there I drank ayahuasca for the first time. And, and it was, a, a, as happens to many other people, it was a revelation, a kind of a revelation. And this revelation had two, two sides, you know, uh, on one part or two parts. On one part, it was the discovery that ayahuasca brought to me, the experience, right? And, but also the, the, the culture, because I lived in, in the house of the shaman for, for a few days and I, had, and, I, and I looked around and I saw the, the way families lived and how they shared and, and it was very interesting to me. Um, I was a journalist at the time in Spain and, and I had always in my mind, the possi- when I got back, the possibility to, to come to the Amazon and work here as a storyteller 
Um, telling stories about ayahuasca and about the and about the indigenous cultures, you know. Um, and so, in 2007, I found a, a master's degree here in in the city of Leticia, which is in Colombia, and they had a a, a very nice uh, master's degree about uh, Amazonian studies. That's the name of the degree, master master's degree on Amazonian studies. And, and there was a, um, a line inside that master's degree about uh, ethnographic uh, research. And so that's what I did. That I, I came here, I came to live here. I left my, my life in, in Spain, in Madrid, where I was working as a, as a journalist. And I came here and I, I wanted to, to you know, learn the, the best I can, I could, about uh, the indigenous cultures. I did field work for my master thesis in, in Tushipibo communities. One of the, these communities was San Francisco de Yerarnia Cocha, with the shaman I, I first met in my first trip. And, and so I, that, that work was not uh, about ayahuasca. I just wanted to have a, a bigger picture of what's going on. So I just, I just had a very, very general uh, overview of Shipibo culture. Um, but allowed me to have a, a, a good idea of what, what is living in the forest. What, is, what are indigenous cultures here in the Amazon? What are the basis, the basis of, their, of their everyday life? Um, but ayahuasca, ayahuasca was always, you know, on the back of my mind. I, I, I didn't do research specifically on ayahuasca at that time, but I kept going from 2007. I just, I moved here and I'm here since then. And in all these years, almost 13 years now, I've been working, uh, taking a look at uh, maestros, curanderos, shamans. Uh, I've been traveling from Pucallpa, Iquitos, uh, here the Jabari River, and, and other places. And looking around, what is what is ayahuasca like? What is ayahuasca uh, locally? How do how does it work? How how is it served? And how 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 shamans are regarded by by their communities, and but also globally. Um, of course, if you want to know what what ayahuasca is globally, you have to go to Quito's, which has become the center of this you know boom, incredible boom, unexpected boom of people coming here uh, every year to to drink ayahuasca to have the experience in 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 this in what I call a new contest, a completely new contest. But that is, is, it is very interesting. So that's the way I get to, to this point. Mm, yeah, thanks. I'm wondering, uh, based on your time living with the Shipibo outside of Pucallpa, how much a part of the typical Shipibo life is ayahuasca and ayahuasca ceremony? Well, it's not very much, really. Now you mention it, you know, I mean... Probably most most people people never drank ayahuasca. You know, it's important. I mean, it's important in the sense that they have their healers, right? And 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 when someone gets sick, especially in, in villages away from 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 the uh, cities like Pucallpa, when they when they get sick, well, they go to the healer and they go to the ceremony. But they usually don't drink ayahuasca. For example, in the village of Vencedor, uh, where I did field work there for, for several months, 
I attended maybe 10 ceremonies and, and I, I never saw one of the patients drinking ayahuasca, uh, only the, the shamans, the healers, the curanderos and um, their apprentices or assistants drank, but never the patients. So it's important ayahuasca for, for Shipibo people. I wouldn't say that, you know, I would say it's, 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 no, it's important that they have a healers and they still trust them and they go to the, to the ceremonies to be healed. But ayahuasca is, is not something that everyone's drink, everyone drinks. I mean, I, I, I asked here and there, this one uh, and the other one, and most people never drank ayahuasca. Some of them were afraid of drinking ayahuasca, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's interesting to me because there is a narrative that goes around that says, well, traditionally, it was the only, only the healer who would drink ayahuasca uh, as a way to help diagnose and, and connect to his plant allies. It wasn't ever the patient who drank, and that's a fairly new phenomenon that has come along with the, the kind of ayahuasca tourism industry. And so it's interesting to hear that that's you know, what you found to be the case. Yeah, well, see, people, it's just one case. There are many cases, and, and, and you cannot extrapolate from that that all the Amazonian cultures, the patients never drank ayahuasca. And this is the Shipibo case, which is very interesting because, you know, the, the lodges, ayahuasca lodges in, in Quitos are full of Shipibo shamans that are uh, giving the ayahuasca to, to uh, almost everyone, when in their own villages, almost no one will drink. But there are other cultures and, and, and other contests where any, anyone can go and drink. And sometimes you, you would find uh, meetings or ceremonies where everyone drank, you know. So hmm. uh, it's, 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 we cannot extrapolate. But I have to say that in my experience, most of the ayahuasca ceremonies I have attended, it's very common that patients don't drink. You know, ayahuasca is not the center of the system. That's what I, I always repeat. Ayahuasca is not the center of the system. It might be a help. Sometimes the, the shaman might, you know, recommend the patient to drink ayahuasca, but it's not the center of the system. Patients can be healed without drinking ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is the tool of the healer to connect with the spirit world and you know, and, and, and that way bring the forces from, from the from the ally spirits into this world in order to heal. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, did you get a sense of how the Shipibo people viewed how um, gringos are interacting with shamans and ayahuasca? Like, did they think that it was strange that we would come down there and, and drink? Well, no, not really. I think they are they are very used to. I mean, it's been like almost five cent, five centuries now of Westerners going to to the Amazon River, you know. So they are very used to receiving Westerners and to their very strange demands of things that for them, you know, well, don't have value or or suddenly they have value because because there is this change. And they have, they, have, uh, they have been receiving Westerners for so long with so many different interests. I mean, that they are not surprised at all. They are, 
receiving Westerners is one of their, it's a cultural feature, you know, it's mm. one of their abilities. They know how to do it. Uh, however, when a Westerner comes from the first time to the Amazon, they think that it's a virgin interaction, you know, and, and it's not, and they are not very um, skillful in having those interactions while local uh, local Shipibo people or no other indigenous peoples are very uh, skillful in those relationships. So in your books, you introduce an entity that you call Monster Vorax, and you give it a voice throughout the narrative. And I found uh, this to be a very effective device. And I was wondering if you could talk about uh, what is Monster Vorax and how this came to you and uh, what it represents in relation to ayahuasca and Nikitos? Well, Monster Borax, you know, it's it's hard to say what Monster Borax is. Maybe someone would say it's but I think it's it, it goes beyond that, you know, capitalism or uh, uh, maybe it's uh, the globalization could be monster borax, or maybe the complex societies, not only the, the 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 West, but also the East. You know, China and, and all this accumulation, and and this need for more and more that is taking the world to 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 the collapse. I mean, what can I say? It's, it's mm. This this system needs more and more and more and more, and it's it's uh, infinite growing. You know, like every every country. You know, we are facing now uh, probably a new crisis because because the economies of the world are not producing and consuming more. You know, like the the German economy is now in recession. They they didn't grow, so we are. <laughs> we are fucked because of that, you know. This is it's like crazy. When what we need to do is not to not to produce, not to consume so much. You know what is monster borax? Uh, well, this this emptiness maybe in in, in human in humanity. And what? Well, how does it relate? Because because uh, for some reason that I, I don't um, haven't been able to figure out. In the Amazon, the local cultures were able to resist this need for growing, you know, need for growing as as, a, as people, you know, demographic uh, growth, but also as accumulation, you know. Uh, the populations here were very well balanced <coughs> towards them. And, and there was no process of accumulation, uh, um very very little productive specialization and and hierarchies which is something that defines on the other hand the the monster borax society capitalism or the west or the east or wherever with these huge hierarchies with this um, so complex productive system so specialized you know with, that needs accumulation in order to to fuel all that you know, and, and, and this is what, this is the, the two worlds that are colliding, you know, in clash here. A world of accumulation, a world of not accumulation. And that's Monster Boras uh, acting here. And that's what, what, I, what I like to see when I, 
when I look at these interactions between local, uh, the local and the global here. Mm-hmm. And I think it was interesting in your books how you, so just, just for listeners, I had to look up the word vorax. I, I didn't have any education in Latin, but vorax, correct me if I'm wrong, is the Latin word for uh, voracious, like a very correct. Un- insatiable appetite. Correct, correct. Yeah, and this is the name that you've given to this drive that we have for exponential growth, accumulation of wealth and uh, material belongings. Uh, And also that kind of that feeling of emptiness that you talked about. You know, I'm reminded of of a metaphor that one of my teachers, Gabor Mate, uses. Uh, it's It's a Buddhist metaphor of the hungry ghost. And it's a being with a very large empty belly, but with a very narrow neck and small mouth. So it can never, it can never uh, satiate its appetite. It can never eat enough. So it's always wanting more and more and more. So there's also that, that wanting and that longing or that emptiness that's driving this, this hunger. Yes. Yes. And that's, that's, that insatisfaction, that insatisfaction it's feeling that that is feeling the logic that it was logic in Iquitos because people who go there very often they have this problem of anxiety of emptiness of anguish because you know they 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 want more and more and they want more experiences actually the 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 search for this ayahuasca experience is another symptom of, of this um, veracity you know the need the need we have for new experiences, for new stimuli, for something that, you know. So, um, well, you know. Yeah, and I guess what I, was, what I was getting to was that on one side, that's what's driving uh, a lot of the gringos is this hunger for spiritual experiences or non-ordinary experiences. Um, but also on the other side, it seemed like you were showing that um, the same drive for growth and accumulation is also affecting the the local people or people who have moved there to start a new life where it's they're feeding each other is the demand for ayahuasca is also feeding this uh, this capitalism that's growing around the industry yes yes of course I mean the locals I mean it's not like there is this you know, pristine Amazon world where they, you know, live in harmony and happy without accumulation and it's perfect. That doesn't exist, you know, at all. And, and they are, in in the last centuries, they have been, you know, um, they have been put, brought into the global global market economy. It's not, it's not something recent in, in, in a, in a great degree, this is happening now, you know, especially in, in the mid, in the mid 20th century when they, when they set up schools in, in the, in the forest and started to change people's mind about how they should produce, about how families should be, about religion. And, 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 and this is, this is a process that, that it's, going deeper and going farther the the introduction of these cultures into the global market economy and so what i say is i mean this is 
it's not that I like it or I don't like it or I criticize not at all. This is this is a fact. I mean, local cultures are into market economy. And now what happens? Ayahuasca is probably or we haven't found any other local activity, local knowledge that put into the market economy, you know, allows the people who have that knowledge to succeed. What is succeeding in the market economy? Getting rich. So for the first time, with a local knowledge, there are indigenous peoples that are getting rich. And this, that some people say, it's like a profanation. This is a profanation. No, it's not a profanation at all. It's actually, it's actually for me something incredible that I admire the persons who come in from this background where they hardly know how to read, hardly know how to, you know, uh, use numbers. They can get rich. I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. I, I, you know, I have, uh, I told you at the beginning that, that, that I met a, a shaman in my first trip in 2001. At that time, he was receiving people in his house. You know, he was very young. He was like 34 or 33. And um, his dream was to set up a camp, a lodge, where he, he would receive tourists. You know, that was 18 years ago. Now he's got two lodges and he's a very wealthy man. And, and well, was, I admire him because for them, for the local people, you know, when their forest is, is, is depleted, when the forest is so, so poor now, the only solution... The only solution is money. Mm. And money is very hard to get. And the people who come in from that background gets the money. I only have words of admiration for those people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it points to the, an incredible adaptability and resourcefulness of the people. Um, even in their way to... Uh, to market themselves. Like I know some uh, local healers who have partnered with people coming from America to help them build their websites and create Facebook pages. Um, it, it is really quite incredible how they've been able to adapt in order to thrive. Yes, yes, yes. yes it is. They, they have this huge capability of adapting uh, Amazon societies. They are very, they are very simple. And as they are very simple, they, their structures are very simple, they can adapt to a different thing very easily. Instead, uh, the, the, our society, which is a very big, stru very structured, it's, it, you know, it's very more difficult for, 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 for our societies to adapt to something else, I think. Mm. And there's not so much a willingness to accommodate the, the outsider. Yes. It's like the outsider has to conform to our structure rather than, right. uh, rather than us shifting and changing. And this, this points to something that uh, comes up in, in your books is how, I mean, and this is something that I found actually like a little disturbing, is how the ayahuasca tourism industry is not only changing the way that the locals are working with ayahuasca, but also changing the nature of the brew itself. Can you talk about how the expectations of the tourists coming for an ayahuasca experience has, has changed both the, uh, the ceremony and also the brew itself? 
Yeah, well, um, I have to say that the local people uh, do still work the same way in their own contest. You know, it, that hasn't changed. They do still work the same way, you know. But in the new contest, meaning the ayahuasca lodges, yes, of course, the, 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 the differences are very important. Um, the brew, the brew, has, has the brew changed? Yeah, the brew, ha the brew has changed. Um, uh, for example, one thing that, that is very common now in, in, in the Iquitos area is that uh, I can't say how common it is, you know. I, don't ha I haven't done a research so deep. It would, would be very difficult to know how, how important is this phenomenon. But what happens is that uh, they are adding to the typical brew, usually made up by ayahuasca vines and chacruna leaves, that we all know, that's the most typical brew. They have been adding a lot of different plants, especially the, um, the toe. It's, it's a scientific name, Brugmansia, Brugmansia which con contains scopolamine. And scopolamine is a very powerful hallucinogenic that has, you know, a potential danger for, for the person who ingests. Um, they, they usually uh, add this, this plant, not, not always, not all of the, of the producers, but you find that this very often because it's supposed to enhance the visions, which is one of the demands that people who come from the West bring i mean they why do they go to the why do they go to the lodges usually because they want to have visions that's their their higher expectation having visions and it's supposedly the the toe brugmansia allow people allows people to to enhance those visions but it has very powerful side effects so many many local healers don't recommend it at all you know it's difficult to use that energy of the plan if you want to to call it that way so that's that's one one of the main you know changes i've seen and other other maestros or shaman gringo shamans use other uh, other plants you know like tobacco or or other things and i think that this is part of 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 um, the, our marketing, you know, like like when you go to the supermarket and you you don't find just milk, <laughs> you you don't you you won't be able to find just milk. <laughs> you will find all kind of different milks with all kind of different additives and tastes and and so it's a little. I think it's a little on that line the, that we use these plants that will differences from from other place and. And how ceremonies have changed? Well, ceremonies, ceremonies have more than ceremonies. Because if you go to a ceremony uh, in a local contest, or you go to a ceremony in in a in a lodge, it might seem similar, you know. But what what has really changed is the treatment. The treatment in the whole thing, you know, it's very different. You know, there are very important differences between the medical system that uh, is uh, in for the 
uh, ayahuasca tourists and the medical system for the local people. There are very, very important difference in, in, those, in those two, you know, expressions of ayahuasca shamanism. Mm. Well, one of the differences that I, that I noticed when I, was, um, when I was at the Temple of the Way of Light was that the, the curanderos were not allowed to do things like um, chopar, like the, the sucking out of uh, energies or entities uh -huh. because it was too disturbing for the gringos. Mm. Um, I see. Well, every lodge has their own, you know, way of working. I, I never had heard any, any, I never had heard this, this way of working without sucking. Um, I understand that this might have been done because, uh, you know, one of the things that have come, has come up in, in the, in the ayahuasca lodges is sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this, this has happened. We don't know how much to what extent. But uh, the question is that when you go, and this is one of the differences concerning the figure of the healer shaman, this is one of the huge differences. And when a Westerner goes to meet a shaman and drink ayahuasca with him or her, they have the idea that a shaman is a saint or something like that. A, a spiritual person who is always right, and who is wise, and who is an awesome person, pure-hearted, and <laughs> so mm -hmm. this is a fantasy. This is a fantasy. Mm. You know, people, uh, healers in their communities are people that are very controlled by the community because they have this special power. It's not the power only to heal, but it's also the power to to make people sick. You know. So they are, people in the, in the communities are a little afraid of their healers, you know. They treat them with, with, very, with a lot of respect. They would never say of their healer that is a saint, never, ever. And would never, you know, um, would always, usually when a woman, for example, has to go to a healer in, in, a, local, in a local contest, She'll bring her family around to take care of her. She, 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 won't, she won't go to the shaman and say, do with me what you want. I need your hands. That's not the way it works. But it's the way it works for the Westerners. Westerner woman and Westerner, West, Western woman and Western men, you know, they think like the shamans are saints or something like that. And when you do that, when you, do, when you have the idea that shamans are saints, you are just so vulnerable and so open that they can do anything with you, you know, I mean. And so I understand that this sucking is not, is not only in Temple of the Way of Light, although I have to say that sucking is a fundamental feature, fundamental feature of local systems, you know. So that would be another transformation, important transformation that I, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, yeah, that's just one example, but I'm sure we could find a lot of others. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, let me, let yeah. me add something. Mm -hmm. While I, I, I say that local and global contests are different and, and medical treatments in one, in one part are different than, than the medical mm, treatments in the other, I'm not saying that one is good and the other one is bad. 
I want to leave that very clear. I'm just saying that they are different. Mm -hmm. you know? I want to say that because sometimes when you say that, uh, when I say that, uh, that treatments uh, that are offered in lodges are not traditional, when I say this, people, people you know, feels like attacked. But I'm not attacking any, anyone or anybody. I think they, there are some ayahuasca lodges that do a very good job. What I say is that they are not traditional. And I also don't like to use the word traditional. Mm -hmm. But, but uh, they are very different. They are new treatments for new people with new expectations, with new problems, and so on. Yeah, and I, I you know, I really appreciate that you're you're being really clear about that, about not judging one uh, better or worse than the other, because the way that the um, the the ceremony or the treatment has evolved to accommodate the Westerner is possibly the more appropriate thing for that context. It's a, it's a new context. And so we might say that it, it should evolve and change. Of course. And it has, and it has, and there are some problems related to that change and evolution, but, and sometimes I, I, I show them or I, I write about them, but, yeah, we, we need also some control and some criticism, but I don't think that, that the ayahuasca phenomenon is something bad at all. In, in, I mean, I'm, let's say I'm a son of, the, of this ayahuasca tourism phenomenon, you know? I'm part of it because mm -hmm. I started in the, in the ayahuasca, you know, as an ayahuasca tourist, and I worked in the ayahuasca tourism. I'm another side of this phenomenon, so... I, 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 I wouldn't criticize this phenomenon without criticizing myself. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that because I've benefited from this whole expansion of ayahuasca uh, to the north. And um, yeah, so I've definitely benefited from it. But I also, I just, I'd like to be very aware of what's going on so I can make the most informed choices and then recommendations to people who ask me about it. And that's one of the reasons why I really love what you've put together is because it does seem to be a very fair and balanced overview of what's going on without any judgment one way or the other. But just here's a collection of stories of people who are involved in this industry. And I felt like I was left to decide for myself if it's something that I want to engage in or not. Oh, well, I'm glad that you felt that way, you know, I'm really glad that I got that <laughs> I, because <laughs> I have a point, of, I have a point of view and, and, and sometimes as, as I told you before, I don't know if I, objectivity, you know, objectivity, I, well, I don't like the word, you know, but the fact that you think that I let you decide, it's something that, you know, cheers me up. <laughs> Really? Yeah. Well, have you received any uh, criticism for for putting this all together and getting this information out? Yeah, I have received some criticism, but I don't think that those cri that criticism came from the from the reading of the book of the books. Because when you read the books, there is it's a, it's a very complex and, and big part of what's going on. So I have. I have the possibility to, to explain very well things, but I have had very, a lot of criticism when I do, uh, for example, talks like in the Ayahuasca, World Ayahuasca Conference that was held in, in May, at the end of May in Girona, in Catalonia. 
And I was talking about all these things, and I, I wasn't judging anybody when I was saying, for example, that shamans are not saints, that ayahuasca is not a secret plant from the, from the native point of view. And oof, this hurt a lot. <laughs> I was trying to explain something, and, and this hurt a lot. And also, I have received some criticism because I, I, I look at the, at the um, scarcity of the vine and the growing prices, and, and to the fact that there are large areas in the Peruvian forest where you cannot find it anymore because it has been overexploited. You know, and when, when saying this, and some people haven't liked it. Um, they say other, other, other reports that I've seen say that there is plenty of ayahuasca all over and we don't have to worry about it. I disagree with this. I think, I think that the ayahuasca is not going to, there is no danger of extinction of ayahuasca. I agree with this because the forest is so big, you know, that it's very hard for for people to go like four days into the jungle to to harvest wild ayahuasca, they don't do it anymore. They won't. They won't do it anymore because it's not it's not profitable. Because there is the possibility to to plant the ayahuasca in plantations. So why would you go like five days into the forest when when you can have it, you know, right by your house? So why why would you do this? Because um, people who is into preparing the brew. Or either to to serve it in the in the camps in the lodges, or either to send it abroad because a lot of the of the ayahuasca that is produced in Iquitos is sent abroad. They all say, uh, almost without exception, that the wild vines, wild old vines, produce a much better medicine than the um, small uh, young vines uh, from plantations. So that's the reason that that uh, they prefer the wild vines. So there is a net of gatherers, collectors of, of wild vine in that covers, I would say, the whole uh, Peruvian rainforest. And, and, it, and it all flows to the centers like Pucallpa, less Pucallpa, more Iquitos. And, and there are areas where, where, you, where before you found ayahuasca, and now you don't find ayahuasca. This is what everyone says. Everyone that I interview, of course, there is the the need for for a very mm, let's say. I'm not saying that my I was going to use the word serious. There is the need for a serious study. Not saying that my study is not serious. It's simply that I don't have the means to see how how, how what areas of the forest have been affected for 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 this harvesting. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's been a, a a large area. How large? I don't know really. But I I want to call the attention so uh, about a phenomenon that is happening, and that is not the first time it happens. I mean, this has happened in the in the history of the Amazon in several times. You know, when the West they need some kind of natural product or uh, uh, from the forest and. Uh, and they they extract to depletion, you know. They extract to depletion that happened, for example, with the quinine uh, in the nineteenth century. The quinine, correct? Mm-hmm. Is that the word? Quinine. Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it was used as a tonic. Correct. Correct. Well, the quinine, the the quinine trees, for example, in Colombia, were exterminated in the nineteenth century. 
exterminated because the quinine was um, uh, um, medicine used for, for the fever produced by the malaria. Mm. So it was exterminated in the 19th century and many other species. I, I'm talking about this because it's a medicinal species, but you know, animals, you know, for, for example, for their skins, the jaguars, the caimans, and, 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 the, and the so sad episode of the rubber boom, which was horrible. And, and to feed the the car industry, you know, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, that that was a horrible episode of human history. Yeah, <clears throat> um, I think uh, you know it's, it was really interesting. I've heard uh, from Chris Killam, who has gone and done an anecdotal study of ayahuasca sustainability and he went to different camps and lodges to inquire about uh you know if it's been more difficult to find ayahuasca and things like that and the the story from his report was that there's no problem that there's no shortage but i think your books show another perspective because what's happened is the price of ayahuasca has inflated incredibly. And so a lot of the ayahuasca is going to the lodges because they can pay the most money. And that's affected the locals and that, you know, some of the people you interviewed said they couldn't even afford to buy ayahuasca for their own kind of local healing use anymore. No, is that, uh, well, yeah. how common is that? Well, that happens, you know, that's a fact. I mean, uh, the ayahuasca that that uh, goes into into Iquitos, it's uh, it's. Uh, um, we have to stop a minute, please. Yeah, okay. sure. Question. Well, yes, this is happening. Ayahuasca is becoming. Um, one of the best business in terms of you know you know vegetal products you know like for example a um, a sack of cassava of manioc you, you can get paid like uh, four dollars for it for a sack you know but if you produce a sack of ayahuasca you can get paid forty dollars you know mm. and producing ayahuasca is, is very easy really so mm, now what happens that uh, a local curandero, urban urban local curandero who doesn't have um, plantations because because where they work, they need to buy, and and in the past it was not very difficult at all to buy ayahuasca, you know, because it was so cheap. It was not it, it actually didn't have a commercial value really. But now if you go to to the place where they sell the ayahuasca vines in Iquitos, the Pasaje Paquito, you will have to pay some extraordinary prices for it. So. That's another hit to the. That's another hit to the, to the to the practice to the local practices. You know to adapt to adapt to another contest. But uh, regarding the um, the report by Chris Kilham, I actually read it. I read it um, a couple of times, and I, I I really don't find any difference between their his data and mine. But the conclusions, you know he gets from his data are very different than the conclusions I get from his data. You know, that's the difference. Mm. Can and, you, can you explain the difference? And 
Well, for example, he, uh, I mean, well, I need to, to check out my notes, you know, but mm. he doesn't seem to, uh, for example, one of the things he doesn't do is to, to see how the price of the ayahuasca has evolved in the last years, mm-hmm. you know? And then one of the conclusions he gets is that uh, the, the ayahuasca that is consuming in Quitos comes from, from, the, from this area where he did his study in the Lago Imiria, Imiria Lake. But that's very far from reality because most of the people who sell ayahuasca in the, in the, to the people who are processing it there most of them don't come from so far. They come from the Napo, they come from the Marañón, they come from many different places, not only from there. I mean, even in the case that there is a lot of ayahuasca in the Lago Imiria, thing that I don't doubt. Well, I mean, we have so many experiences, you know, here in the Amazon about products that are abundant and after a year, after after a, a, a year, a few years of bonanza, they don't are they are not abundant anymore, you know, because uh, this voracity of the system is unstoppable, and there is not. I mean, the the, the natural species cannot be replaced with the to to feed the this voracity we have. This is this is this is there. I mean, this is out of of any doubt, you know. And for example, and, um, and, and the, around Iquitos, you know, everyone says that in the, in the road, there, there is not ayahuasca anymore. And there was a lot. And there are many other places where you don't find ayahuasca, where you found ayahuasca. Now the question, the concern of, of this report was, are we going to be able to drink ayahuasca in the future? Yes, there mm-hmm. is no doubt about that. We are going to drink ayahuasca. But the question to me is not whether we are going to drink ayahuasca or not. The question to me is, what are we doing to the forest once again? What are we doing to the forest? We are taking another species from the forest and we are depleting ayahuasca from uh, how large area? I don't know. I don't know. To say. I wouldn't. I, as I told you, we need a, a better study to know uh, what areas have been affected. But yes, a lot of areas where there was this species, then those areas don't have this species. And that is another process of um, making the forest poorer once again. And, you know, as they are taking out all this ayahuasca, in the Lago Imiria, they are making the forest poorer, you know, and I don't care really. Huh? And forgive me all the this. I don't really care if, if people in the West drink ayahuasca or not, or I don't care that as I care for the forest. I care for forest for the local people. That's a poorer for the, for the local people. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that perspective. And that is, to me, just such a, um, I don't know, like a, a self-centered point of view. Like, will we be, will we as Westerners, as gringos, be able to drink ayahuasca in the future? <laughs> I just think it's the wrong perspective to be asking that question from. Um, well, you can ask for that, but I, I simply yeah. have another point of view. And what I want to say about this report by Chris Kilhan, I think it's, it's a good job. 
I think it's a good job. I think he did a good job, but I don't. I, I simply don't share his conclusions, and mm-hmm. I don't share his point of view. But I, I respect, you know, because I think he did a good job. He got some good data, uh, data very similar to what I got, but I simply don't agree with his conclusions and his point of view. And, and maybe something that not everyone is aware of, and, you know, I've been involved in the ayahuasca world for, you know, eight or nine years. And I thought, you know, I knew I had a pretty good idea of what was going on. But watching some of the videos that you include in your in your work, I found it shocking to see how the production of ayahuasca has been industrialized and just how much ayahuasca is being processed for exportation. Well, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a thriving industry, you know, and it's becoming more complex. And as there is more money, there might be, you know, more sophistication, more innovation. And, and as the business gets bigger, well, you know, we'll have this, this process of industrialization that will go, who knows where will it go? I don't know. I, I'm curious about about seeing what happens from in 10 years from here. Maybe this is, you know, something that a trend or something that for the moment and in 10 years, there is no more ayahuasca, uh, you know, people are, are not as interested in, in ayahuasca as they are now and this, you know, decays. But, but I, think, uh, I think it will keep growing. It will keep growing probably. Did you get any sense of the the scope of that export business? <clears throat> like just how much ayahuasca is being exported in terms of uh, a quantity or value? Oof, it's, it's, it's very difficult to say, really. I mean, because uh, besides four or five persons that do this um, like professionally, dedicate themselves to this and have the machinery and have you know the web page and the contacts and this is their job you know this is their profession of the business and there are many many small producers you know and i have to count among them the lodges that also produce the brew not only for for them for the for for the consumption during the ceremonies but also because they send it abroad to the people who dare who went there and learned the shamanism in their in their lodges, and then they have these links with them where they send them the ayahuasca that they produce. It's another another side of the business. So it's it's so difficult to say, but mm-hmm. some figures, for example, uh, uh, a liter of ayahuasca is being sold now at two hundred and fifty dollars, and more or less, you know, that's the standard price I've seen. And the pro- producing one liter of ayahuasca is not is not that expensive at all. So there is a lot of profit. There is a lot of profit. And, mm-hmm. and for example, let me th- let me talk about Ron Willock, who, who was one of the the producers, the most important producer of of, of the ayahuasca brew for exportations in Iquitos. Ron Willock, who's uh, who's my friend, I have to say, a wonderful person, uh, dedicated ayahuasquero but who also produces the brew, you know, for exportation. I mean, when I say, when I talk about Ron Willow, sometimes people, oh, he sells the brew, he exports the brew, and he charges for it. 
to the to the bonfire. Let's burn him. Sometimes this, you know, <laughs> I have to hear this. I have to hear this. I'm from the same people who are, I don't know, in Spain or in the United States or wherever, drinking ayahuasca that someone bought from Ron Whitlock. Right. Okay? <laughs> so <Yeah>. it's incredible. <laughs> they criticize Ron Whitlock. Well, Ron Whitlock in his best years, in his best years, he, he sold several hundreds of liters a year. $250 a liter. So probably he made, I don't know, $150,000, $200,000 a year. A year. So that's a, a good quantity. But mm-hmm. he's in a special case. He's in a special case because he, he devoted to cooking the broom. And he, he said, well, you know, I mean, he needed to make a living, he said, and, and this is a way, opportunity, this, that opportunity presented to him. And he's a very, he does a very good work, and he, and he supplies, you know, he satisfies the needs of, of a lot of people in the world who want to drink ayahuasca. So I don't see how that can be a profanation, you know, I don't see it. In, in other, in other, um, among other reasons, because something that I've left behind is that locally, and I can say Ron is probably the gringo who has adapted better to the local ways of life. Locally, ayahuasca is not a sacred plant locally. And when I said this in the last ayahuasca conference, oof, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> people felt very angry about this statement but because maybe they didn't understand what I meant I don't I don't mean that ayahuasca is not an important plan I don't mean that ayahuasca has not to be you know controlled or you have to be careful with ayahuasca yes I think it's a special plan you, you have to be careful it's important and so on but it's not a secret in what way is not sacred because secret is, is a is a, is a word that is, you know, it, it has a, a charge. I don't know if that you understand what I mean. Mm-hmm. So we might say it's a loaded word. It comes with a lot. A lot. Yeah, it's a loaded word that comes with a lot. What What are the two? What What are the two uh, things that are load that is loaded with first? Uh, something sacred is something divine. Is something good, you know. But mm-hmm. ayahuasca itself uh, and the ceremonies that go with it are not divine. Are not divine. Um, uh, how would I say? Like in, you could in, say they're not. They're not uh, inherently holy and pure. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Why? Because it can be used for the good and for the bad. Mm-hmm. And every maestro, curandero, shaman will tell you this. Not only that, and any maestro, curandero you talk to, uh, will will speak of the of of the other shaman of the other village of the shaman of the other village, or or even the shaman of the other lodge of of or 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 their maestro or their apprentice as people who do wrong with ayahuasca. This is very common. Not only that, when a patient in a, in the local contest go to a ceremony with, with some kind of sickness, it's, it's very uh, usual that the healer says that 
the sickness has been produced by witchcraft. So when they find this witchcraft, Daniel, they say it, harm, when they find this harm in, in the patient's body, the healer has to take out the harm. Sometimes it's a birote, it's like a spike that the, the witch has put into the patient's body, has to extract this, the spike and give it back to the people who put it there, you know, who are supposedly witches. Of course, you know, the supposedly which when receive the spike, you know, don't agree with uh, being a witch. In fact, they, they, will, they will think, well, I know the witch. The witch is he or she who has just sent me the spike. Yeah. So, <laughs> and this is a net of, of, of shamanic warfare where everyone is always suspected of being a witch. For example, in, in a community, in a local community, this... The, the suspect, I mean, they are local healers, shamans, curanderos, are always suspects of being witches. And always, by some part of their society, by some part of the neighbors, they are considered witches. So there is this duality in, that is inherent to the, to the ayahuasca uh, world. Even, for example, the... the the word used in Shipibo, for example, the word used uh, to categorize the category that uh, ayahuasca is, as a plant is included is a rao plant. Mm -hmm. R A O. It's a rao plant. And rao means both medicine and poison. So you mm -hmm. have the, the uh, so from the from their own point of view, there is nothing that is divine in ayahuasca. It might be used for the good, it might be used for the bad. That's one of the things I mean by saying that as ayahuasca is not a secret plant from the local point of view. But there is an, a second one, a second part of this of this uh, explanation is that uh, sagrado, sacred, sacred is a is a word from the Latin and uh, the root is is, is the Latin and it's full, if you look at the etymological uh, dictionary of the word, it is full of hierarchy, you know? Uh, 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 I, uh, do you say hierarchy? Hierarchy, hierarchy. Hierarchy, right? Hi hierarchy. Yes, yeah. because in order to make something sacred, there must be a hierarchy that will say what, what is sacred, how sacred has to be used, who can use sacred and when using sacred, you know? Yeah, the, and, and defining one thing as sacred is also saying that other things aren't sacred. Like it's making for it, example. It's, it's special. And I think it's, yeah, exactly. Like to, it's always us, the human, who defines what is sacred, which is interesting. Yes. Yeah. We define what's sacred, but in, in sacred is a word from Latin, and it's very related to the Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And so you don't only when when there is something sacred, there needs to be some um, some people who decide what is sacred, who can touch it, who cannot touch it, how it must be handled, um, and so on. And if you do. If you do not, you know, respect those restrictions and so on, something happened, something bad might happen to you. 
you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> in the can- <laughs> because there is an authority, there is an authority that can that have the strength, the, the coercive or coercitive means to to uh, avoid that you do that you touch the sacred or to, to make you touch the sacred as, as they want you to. Yeah. I don't know if I, if this is clear, if I have explained myself clearly here. Well, yeah. So you're talking about how you're challenging this Western idea that ayahuasca is a sacred plant. And you're saying on, on one hand, it's not because it can be used for, for harm or for healing that even the Shipibo see it as something that can be used as a poison or as a cure. And on the other hand, that who, uh, who is the one defining it as, as sacred and in defining it as sacred, are you putting a set of rules or guidelines around how it should or could or must be used, must be used or not to be used. Yeah. And, let me add the, the, final, the final idea about this last explanation, is that uh, local societies are not hierarchical. Hierarchical, is that correct? Yeah, it's a tough one for a Spanish speaker, uh, but it's... Because okay. we, we have the H sound at the beginning, so it's like high, up high, hierarchy. Hierarchical, hierarchical. Yeah, exactly, okay. yeah. Local societies are not hierarchical. You Very know, good. local Amazon societies are not hierarchical. That means they, they, they are, especially, of course, there might be exception to this, but in the, in the ayahuasca curanderismo contest, I mean, the, the, um, the tribes or the groups that use this kind of um, ayahuasca shamanisms, these are egalitarian societies. So there, there is not any institution, you know, there is not any elite, there is not any hierarchy that can, you know, set up a, a, some kind of a set of rules about who uses it, who uses this, how, how using it, and, and so on. There is not this. So, um, I mean... But, yeah, yes. I'm wondering, though, uh, if there's something unique to those types of uh, cultures that acts as a control for who will engage with something powerful like ayahuasca. And I'm thinking about like superstition around, uh, around the plant that would keep people fearful of it. And only, you know, the, the shaman who have uh, been initiated into it and, and trained on how to use it safely, that they're the ones who will only be willing to engage with it because everyone else is afraid to. Oh, so I wonder if there's just other forms of control. Yeah, there are mechanisms of control, of course, as you say. So this what you say, superstition. I don't like to use that word, you know. Let's say there are metaphors, metaphors that mm, may not be literal, but are, but are functional. And but would I, yes, were you yeah. going to say something? Uh, no, I was just going to say um, I didn't mean superstition as a, in a derogatory way or anything, so maybe it's not the right term to use. Okay, um, so um, we were talking about, yes, but about hierarchical. The question is, if someone in a village, in a local village, decides, you know, that he or she is a shaman, and there is someone like a neighbor 
or 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 a family or whoever who say let's say he is a shaman then he's a shaman or she is a shaman you know there right. is no I mean, there is no this, you know, institution that is going to say, here, here's your diploma. You are a shaman. You can, you can be a practitioner. No, no. I mean, this is, sure. is freedom. It's going to be the, the community who decides who is the healer. Yeah, certainly the community, but not just really, I mean, community very often disagree about things. You know, it's not like they are a, a whole unit. They are full of harmony in, in a community. There are, you know, different tendencies and even um, there are fights, you know, and struggles for mm -hmm. power in, in the communities. And so there is no need for the community to say, yes, the, if you present yourself as, shaman, as a shaman and you have someone beside you who say, yes, you are, then to me, that's enough. You know? Yeah, what I meant was not that there's some community uh, meeting where people get around and they agree this person is a shaman or not, but just more organically, if a person is working as a healer, if they're supported and welcomed by, by the majority of the community, then they will be the healer. And if they're not effective in right. what they do, or if they're causing more harm than good, then I think the community has a way of dealing with that organically where they just stop supporting the person or tell them to go live in the forest or something. Right. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's complicated, you know, because in the, inside the communities, there are many differences. So there are many forces, clashing forces in order to avoid that any part of the community accumulates power. Hmm. So, so uh, for example, um, shamans and, and, and healers are always, always, you know, uh, very controlled. You know, they are, they, they, people is afraid of them, people control them, people need them, you know, they need them because they heal, but they, they are afraid of them because they can, they can do harm, you know, so, so they are, they are really controlled. So this, um, this egalitarian, uh, I don't know what we call it, organicity of, of these communities is, is, I'm just wondering, like you're talking about how it kind of naturally balances itself. And I'm just wondering about when a particular healer starts to make more money because he's catering to uh, tourists, if there's ever mm -hmm. a, way, a way to keep that in check so he doesn't gain too much power. Well, I, one of the reasons that uh, curanderos have always been very controlled is that as they are the only specialized uh, workers of, of, their, of their society, because these societies are not, are not specialized, you know, in the production. I mean, a couple men, women, when they get together in marriage, uh, they, they have all the knowledge, you know, to to have a good life. I mean, men can build houses, men can hunt and fish and make the canoes. Women have plantations, and and, and then well, among among the two of them, a man and a woman, they have all the all the necessary knowledge to have a good life. So you don't have a productive specialization. So you don't have a hierarchy. You know. Mm -hmm. Now the only specialization there is is the healer. Right. So as you are the only specialized uh, person in, in this system, you 
have the possibility to accumulate. You have this special power. And as uh, ayahuasca curanderos, ayahuasca healers are professionals because that's what they are. They are professionals in the local context. They always receive a payment. And if and if and as they this is an open profession. What this means, you don't treat just the people in your village. If someone comes from another village, you also treat them. And if someone comes from another country, you also treat them. So the possibility of accumulating and and uh, elevating yourself over over your neighbors exists for for a curandero, and that's another reason that they you know control control the their curanderos more, you know, because they have this special power. Not only because they can do harm with their knowledge, their magical knowledge, if you want, but because they they have the possibility to accumulate material wealth because they are they get paid if with money better with objects like industrial objects like uh, uh, machetes or or whatever you know mm-hmm. and so <clears throat> and so i missed i missed my point i don't know where i was going well we were talking about how how the community might control the curandero from gaining too much financial power uh, oh yeah, yes, yes, yes. Okay, what well, what happens? So there are mechanisms of control, controlling him. Like for example, one of them, very typical, is that if you make too much money, immediately they are going to accuse you of being a witch. <laughs> you, yes, yes, you are doing witchcraft. That's the reason you make so much money. This uh-huh. is very typical. This is very typical. And so no one wants to have that burden on their reputation, you know. And so really, it's. It's exhausting for for the people to be, you know, subject subject of all this gossip, you know, that you do harm to this and to that, and that creates also a very a very difficult uh, uh, relationships with your neighbors, and so people sometimes when when it's very difficult for people here to accumulate in in, in local societies because when they do they are going to be criticized so hard and they are going to be accused of so many things. So that, that's one mechanism of control. What's the problem? The problem is that uh, now the, 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 the dynamics of the market economy are changing also those mechanisms of control. You know, they are not so effective as they were before because accumulation is needed. And so uh, step by step, the new the new moral and the new economy is is uh, well they are adapting to to that new moral and to that and to new that economy and it's more difficult every time to control accumulation in your neighbors well and also isn't uh, so if a curandero starts getting a reputation outside of his home community and more people start to come visit is it not also creating uh, more abundance in the community by the Cordonero having a support team, uh, you know, cooks, uh, guards, apprentices, uh, you know, ayahuasca suppliers, all of those people who kind of feed the industry. Uh, it would seem to me that if the Cordonero is spreading the wealth, that it may not be people may not want to control it so much you know because they're all benefiting from it yeah yeah that's that's another process that is taking place of course you know and so, so usually you you hire your 
you hire your your family, you know, and you give money and you bring money for your family. So people is admire. For example, this guy I talked to you, uh, the shaman I met in 2001, and then uh, set up two two camps in in San Francisco in Acocha. This guy is highly regarded. Uh, I also highly criticized and accused of witchcraft and all these things that I said, but it's also highly regarded, not for being, not for being a shaman or an ayahuasca, or no, but for being a businessman, you know, hmm. and, and, and he, that's, that's what he, why, why he is admired because, because he is a businessman, he has succeeded in that, but then you have the, the opposite forces, you know, inside the community that are accusing him of doing very, very bad things. And uh, unfortunately, uh, a few years ago, he was riding his bike with, with his daughter and they had an accident and the daughter died, you know. Hmm. And, and it was, uh, uh, well, he, he said that it, has been, it had been a witchcraft that they had done to him because he's been so successful, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a little bit the 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 tale that's going on there with witchcraft, money, and and all these things. Hmm. Well, this has been really fantastic being able to talk to you, and um, yeah, and I think ho- hopefully point more people to your work, people who are interested in in just learning more about. Uh, ayahuasca and especially ayahuasca in and around Iquitos. I think it's just absolutely fascinating. And I think the more that we, that we understand about the effects that the tourism is having, then we can just make decisions that are aligned with our own values. And I think that's just really, really helpful. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And um, it says on your website that this is going to be an ongoing project for you. So I wondered well, if you, you could talk about like what your interest is now or where your research has led you. And yeah, I have to, I have to, I have to reflect about what I'm going to do next. But my idea is to go to, let's say, the roots of this phenomenon, which might be in the Napo River or in the Marañón River, all this ayahuasca shamanism, this mestizo shamanism, that is the the shamanism that has expanded globally probably has its roots in the Marañón and Napo River. I want to see what's going on there and how the how the boom of ayahuasca tourism has affected the practices in in these two rivers. Because, for example, I have heard some of the researchers saying that many villages are without their their ayahuasqueros, their healers, because they have gone working to Iquitos, you know, mm-hmm. for example. They are dedicated now to the tourists and have left their community. So this is something I've heard. I would like to see to what point this is true or not. For example, and I don't know, and also I want to, to go deep into the Catholic roots of the ayahuasca shamanism because it has some important Catholic roots or in Catholic influence, even when it's, uh, of course, it's a, it's a forest knowledge. I mean, I'm not saying that this comes from the Catholicism, but in the genesis of the ayahuasca shamanism, of this mestizo shamanism, 
uh, it's very linked to some process that took place in the 17th century in the upper Amazon. I mean, in this area, exactly, the Marañón River and the Napo River, where there were the, the missionaries, the Spanish missionaries there, they settled there, they, they, they created villages there. And, and it seems very clear for me and for other researchers that in that area, you know, is where the ayahuasca shamanism was born. The ayahuasca shamanism that has been expanded globally, you know, because there are many other ayahuasca shamanisms, but the one that has succeeded in the market economy is probably very linked to this process of missionaries coming to the, to the Amazon, to the diseases that they spread, to the reaction of the people against this, uh, this process, uh, this crisis, you know, demographic crisis, health crisis, social crisis. And in the middle of that, I think, is that ayahuasca shamanism, this ayahuasca shamanism, um, appeared or developed, mm. I think so. So I would like to, to take a look at that. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, sounds fascinating. Um, well, once again, I just want to thank you for taking the time. I know it's been difficult for us to meet up. You're living on the banks of the Amazon River, and so internet connection is sometimes difficult. So just I want to thank you for your efforts in making this happen. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. I really enjoy talking to you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or sharing it on social media. If you're looking for support on your medicine path, you can become a Patreon subscriber and have access to hours of yoga practice resources, podcast extras, and more. You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. If you would like more personal support, you can book an online session with me at brianjames.ca. Thanks for listening. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.